0: You're listening to B2B Revenue Acceleration, a podcast dedicated to helping software executives stay on the cutting edge of sales and marketing in their industry. Let's get into the show.
1: Hi, welcome to B2B Revenue Acceleration. My name is Aurélien Moutier, and today we are celebrating a very important milestone for our podcast. We have reached 100 episodes. The journey started two and a half years ago. And and over the 100 episodes, we welcome some amazing guests within the B2B tech space, tech industry, that share some great insights with you, our audience, our listeners. So we would like to thank you as well for listening to our show. Some of you have been very vocal, reaching out, asking for more, and we really appreciate that. This is what we want. We want some feedback on what we are doing. And to be honest with you, we reached the 100 episodes simply because we saw an appetite. We saw people encouraging us. And sometimes it's difficult to keep going. So again, a massive thank you to our audience because without you, the, the show would not exist. For the episode, episode, we are broadcasting the audio of a recent virtual event that Operatix promoted. And that event was titled Becoming a Unicorn, a Journey of Rapid Growth and Scale. We lined up some great panelists and that shares some very fantastic insights. And I hope that you guys enjoy the episode today. Let's get into the show. Okay. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our events today, Becoming a Unicorn, a journey of rapid growth and scale. I'm Aurélien Motier, the CEO and co-founder of Operatics. Uh, Operatics is a company that helps B2B software companies to accelerate pipeline and revenue across EMEA and North America. Today, I have the pleasure to welcome a fantastic, a fantastic bunch of panelists. Actually, quite a fun bunch as well. Who will be sharing how they have helped their company to become a unicorn. A unicorn, if you don't know what that is, is a company that is reaching a valuation of $1 billion. So that's quite interesting uh, and quite an achievement. But before we dive into the conversation, what I wanted to encourage all the people who will be listening onto the call today uh, is to share questions, share their thoughts in the chat. Just so we can, uh, towards the end of the conversation, go back to those questions and share those questions with the panelists so they can give you the answer. So let's start with some introduction. Ladies first, Didi, you want to go and uh, briefly introduce yourself, Wing VC, the, the company you represent?
2: Yeah, thank you. It's an honor to be here. And uh, thanks so much. It's it's great to be here in such a esteemed company. Uh, my name is Didi Dayton, and I'm a partner at Wing Venture Capital. My role is to bring innovation to our CXO community, which is about 60,000 enterprise executives. and I, And also to give our portfolio company access to our customers. So I spent the last 20 years as a global operator in hyper-growth startups, three of which were actually unicorns. I'm based in California, and I'm also my household IT department.
1: (laughs) Thanks for that, Didi. Thanks for that. Dimitri, would you like to go next?
3: Yeah, sure. Happy to. Uh, Hello, everybody. Uh, Dimitri Sirota,
4: CEO and co-founder of a company called Big ID. Uh, We're headquartered in New York, uh, which is where I'm calling you from. And then we have development in Tel Aviv, and uh, roughly about five years old, uh, 300 people right around the world, um, in
3: Europe, in the U.S., Israel, Asia, Latin America, etc. I'm glad to be here. Thank you
0: for having me. Thank you, Dimitri. Thomas? Hi, everybody. My name is Thomas Bean. I'm the Chief Marketing Officer at uh, Druva, a data protection company. We're about 800 employees present globally. And before that, I spent uh, 15 years in a company called TIPCO. Doing integration analytics, and I had different lives, starting from pre-sales, sales, and then marketing. Um, So all roles focused on the on the customer interaction. Good. And last but not least, Thibaut.
5: Hello, Anya. Hello, everybody. My name is uh, Thibaut Searle. So I'm the EMEA founder for uh, Snowflake. Uh, So hired in March two thousand seventeen. So four years up to build up from scratch the business in Europe, Middle East, Africa. Uh, I work in the software industry for uh, more than twenty years. Um, so for Snowflake, I've been the first employee outside the US, and I started uh, this adventure in a very small office. And I will uh, probably share more in a very small office in Paddington and scale this business now in uh, in fourteen different uh, different countries. Yeah,
1: you must have done well. Something was good in the in the method uh, that I. Uh, Thanks, Thibault. So, so coming back to the topic and, and getting us started, guys, uh, further to the introduction, uh, we know that currently there are about 500 tech companies that have reached a $1 billion valuation around the world. Uh, and that's including a huge number of startup uh, being funded across the globe, but only 1% of them actually make it to the Unicorn Club. So first of all, well done for all of you guys for your participation in making that 1%. I mean in your case, Didi he probably helping a few organizations to get there. But what w- what I would like to understand is was it your plan, guys, when you started? So and maybe Dimitri, you, you you would be a good person to answer that question, but was it something that you actually planned? Was was the idea to become a unicorn when you started the business? What what What, what did you start the journey?
3: Yeah, so Clearly, the, the intention
4: was to grow a business. I, I sold my prior company. So I think this time around, I think the hope was to be able to build a business that could sustain and, and remain independent. Uh, now, along that trajectory, you know, obviously, if you're going to go public, you're probably going to be in of a billion dollars in valuation. So yeah, so it wasn't necessarily about being
3: a, a unicorn as much as it was about uh, building um, an independent company and then growing it out. So that was, that was the goal. Good.
1: Well, it's been in four years, it's quite, uh, it's quite an achievement. Uh, so uh, what's next when you get there, basically, I guess would be my question. Well, when you reach that goal, what's, what, what's,
3: what's left?
4: <laughs> well, there's, there's DecaCorn, there's, there's candy CandyCorn. Um, no, so I think, look, I think at the end of the day, uh, you try and build a business. Now, being a unicorn is, I don't think... As unique as it used to be. So, you mentioned 1% of a uh, company is kind of a uh, reach some milestone. It seems almost daily. You know, you see an announcement from Tiger Global minting somebody else as a, as a, as a unicorn. I think they're doing a, a unicorn deal a day. So, look, I, I don't think that is the end point. Clearly, you want to build a business, and a business is not predicated on um, having a, a horse with a horn. It's founded on having revenue and happy customers that are referenceable. Um, and about building demand generation as, as you guys do at our products. So there's a lot of pe- things that you worry about as, uh, as a co-founder of a company. I think it's nice to certainly get uh, recognized as, as a unicorn. It, it gets you on panels like like we are today. But ultimately, I think the focus is always about how do we build build uh, a growing business, right? So that means our revenue, pipeline, uh, services, you know, supporting customers, those kind of things.
1: Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Thanks, Dimitri. So DD moving to your Wing uh, invested in several vendors at a very early stage. In fact, 22 uh, of your company portfolio have achieved a billion dollar plus outcomes in terms of valuation. From your perspective, what are the traits that VC are looking for or should be looking for when they are deciding to invest their funds? Are there any specific patterns that you try to identify or to go after?
2: Yeah, and, and maybe I'll share a little bit about Wing um, so you understand who we are and our investment strategy. We're an early stage investment firm. So we were founded by Peter Wagner from Excel and Gorav Garg from Sequoia. What uh, we invest in is typically seed and series A companies before it's obvious. And a great example of that is Snowflake. We invested in 2012 in Snowflake in their seed round and that was very much before it was obvious that they would sort of take over, you know, a lot of this cloud transformation, you know, effort that's happened. So our investment strategy, we believe that the modern enterprise is data driven and we've made concentrated bets in certain focal areas which has helped generate that 22 billion in outcomes for our portfolio. What do we look for? We look for category creators. We look for founders that have a customer first mindset and a passion for excellence. It was great to hear Dimitri say that, You know, customer first. And we look for the size of the market, we look for any friction getting to that market and differentiation of the actual solution. So ideally we look for companies that have founding teams with experience and drive. And the way that we support those companies is we give them three things. We give them funding, we give them talent, and we give them access to customers, which is what I do. So I help shape that relationship between those first customers, sometimes for product market fit. And then a lot of times it's the earliest customers that they get and try to build a, a solid foundation in their demand generation and say, you know, complement that with their engineering.
1: So the foundation basically getting mm-hmm. them started.
2: Yeah. Like, well, you guys do too, right? Operators yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Yeah,
1: we love it. Yeah. In fact, you know, we, we, um, We've also helped. Uh, we we we've helped so many of those companies that have gone, you know done some some fantastic stuff after I, I was speaking to to some of my vendors recently and I picked up on, on, on one particular discussion that I had with one of them. And what he was telling me is, look, we, we are cloud security and in our category the valuation is thirty times the revenue. So really what I want from operatics is how can you get us to thirty three million, how can we work together? because it's not just us, of course, but to get to $33 million of annual recurring revenue, or $34 million, we million. So we're doing the math, but that's basically what they were looking at. Is that the sort of valuation that companies are looking at? Is 30 times revenue the the, the way we should be looking at it, Didi?
3: Or, or anyone else, by the way?
2: Yeah, Dimitri might want to help answer that question as well.
3: So the number keeps going down. And so <laughs> there's
4: a couple of announcements in the security space. You know, I won't call out the companies, but
3: um, I believe both two uh, that are well under 10, and you know, I believe under five. So, look, I think, I think increasingly, the, you know,
4: I think there's a different kind of calculation that people are doing. I think historically, certainly it was a multiple of revenue. And, you know, maybe at, at some point in history, it was a multiple of uh, earnings or profit. I think today it's it's largely driven by size of addressable market. Um, and I think people are using a different kind of benchmark. It's a lot easier to go public now uh, through SPACs, direct listing for the capital raise. And so I think increasingly people are saying, well, if you could be, uh, you know, number one, two, or three in a market, there's a vehicle for you to probably go public. And
3: now it seems that the current valuations are really measured on uh, kind of a fraction. Like, so I, I think it's kind of inverted where people are looking at the endpoint and say, okay, well, I could kind of get in at one tenth that price. And that's a, that's a fair
4: calculation. And I think it's, you know, and again, maybe it'll revert, but I, I do think even from the time we started big ID where it was more of a multiple on revenue, um, you've certainly seen expansion in those multiples. But I think over the last year and maybe just during the
3: period of COVID, it seems to have detached completely from, from revenue whatsoever and seems to have flipped more on you know, what is this company going to be worth when it goes public?
2: Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think the consensus is that the valuations are insane.
3: Yeah, that's probably where I was
1: going with it. It's it. And as you're saying, Dimitri, I probably had that conversation literally three months ago with the clients, and it seems that since that, things have changed already. So you could do a little bit less and, and still still get there. So, that, that's, uh, so, so does that mean that we just put like a, a stamp on it, and you could have a fantastic technology, and we think you've got a great future, so... There you go, you're part of the unicorn Club or or do you need to to, have, to, have, to be financially sound i mean what's the, what's the minimum because the technology is great, the future is great, but how do you how do we determine who, who is putting this valuation? Is it the market is it the VCs? is it the the larger organization that wants to make acquisition
4: look, I think one thing that you're seeing, and maybe I'll kind of just volunteer at least a partial answer. I know I kind of talked about my perspective that we've seen to untethered from um from um, kind of multiples on revenue. And I think today the investors who clearly are the ones that are minting the, the, the unicorns, right? Um, and you've seen a lot more companies enter what I think sometimes are characterized as crossover funds, that like maybe where public hedge funds are invested in public companies. Uh, there's a number of them. You've seen PE funds uh, get involved. You've certainly seen large asset managers get involved and with more money uh, chasing deals. And again, they're coming in because it's, they 're getting a discount to the public price right that's part of the reason you're seeing this kind of change in, in calculation uh, because you're getting public investors that are coming in and buying buying into private companies that to them seem like a bargain maybe to some of the earlier investors seem yeah. exaggerated and inflated, but I think that's part of the part of the change that you've seen but yeah, look, the investors decide if you're worth something right You get a term sheet there's a number there <laughs> That's your, you know, that's uh, kind of how much they're investing at a, at a free money, that's your valuation. And so I think that they're deciding it. And I do think that in part, you're seeing so many new people come into the technology arena and and they're competing with one another. And again, for them, this all looks cheap because it's a
3: lot cheaper than when a company goes public. And so, you know, I think that's part of the inflation you've seen. Okay. I think that makes sense. Yeah, just, uh, as you said, it, it seems to be
1: a, uh seems to be going a little bit crazy, which is, which is good, I guess, For, for if, if you're the CEO of a, of a tech company. Great right founder. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Sipo, moving on to you now, uh, you joined Snowflake, as you mentioned, in 2017, and you were the first man on the ground in EMEA to build up the, the European organization. You know, Could you please share with us a bit more about the journey and scaling up a business as well as expanding into new region, but also with success? Because clearly, guys, with the IPO you've done last year,
5: it's been a success, successful venture. It is, yeah, it is. It is for good reasons. Uh, I think on top of what Dimitri was saying, I think uh, what we can add on top on valuation is uh, the total addressable market and what what companies can what piece of this total addressable market can take. So, so yes, so far Snowflake is a is a very uh, very large uh, success. So I started all activities uh, in the UK. So when when I joined the company was valued like 200 million. And so uh, it it was uh, it was obviously way smaller than today. And uh, I started all the, acti- all the activities in the UK. Uh, it was the first choice uh, to start. So first I was there. So I have a, this beautiful Oxford accent, but I'm French. <laughs> um, and it's terrible, but it's very difficult to change your accent. By the way. But um, it, it was the first choice to, to to start in the UK for cloud maturity the market was excellent and also and maybe didi can can add on this but uh, uh, for american companies it's still uh, a very good place to start a business in the uk uh, compared to uh, to other uh, other regions so uh, at the beginning we focused really on learning uh, the market uh, the technology uh, the partner ecosystem because when i started uh, there was nothing uh, so I, when we started uh, people were thinking we were selling ice cream because uh, you have some nice uh, Snowflake ice cream shop in London. So uh, it's a true story. And at the beginning, I was, I was starting to um, think the good bet that Snowflake did is uh, to hire uh, somebody that can scale the business and not necessarily having one sales guy just to test uh, because we were convinced by the technology. So at the beginning, uh, my, my, I was maniac on uh, hiring and I took what I call uh, risk takers uh, employees and I was also looking at uh, risk taker customers because when you start, uh, so it's good. It's a, it's a very, um, it was a very uh, good technology, but you need to prove yourself. And when you start a business in, uh, in Europe, uh, one key factor for me was very important was the trust of the execs in the US because uh, so Dimitri is in New York, but uh, the headquarters of Snowflake is in San Mateo, in San Francisco. So when they wake up, it's 3 p.m. for me. So uh, I need to be uh, on the team to be autonomous quickly. So very quickly when I started, I said to them, okay, we need to act like it's our own company. And, uh, and acting like this uh, helped us to really having a sort of autonomy at the beginning and also on the decisions. And I, I was followed by the, by the execs uh, on this, which was very good. So we started to do uh, a lot of hiring, as I, as I was saying. Uh, a lot of pipeline generation, so to, to talk about and do some uh, some awareness. And very quickly, uh, what I shared to the team is um, we need to be. We are Europeans. We are not. We are. We are working for an American company, but in Europe, uh, people don't buy into American stories. So at the beginning, some can, uh, but you need local uh, references. So our priority, we were really like customer maniac to make sure that we we'll have a lot of customers uh, to, uh, to start and uh, also um, uh, really really to have the right references. And as soon as we have this, we had some, some good successes in the UK. I was looking outside <coughs> to see where we will go. And uh, we, we did a, a deep dive analysis on the market. Uh, so it's, it's linked to, to Snowflake, but we went first to the Nordics. So Nordics is a very uh, interesting region. So it's, it's multiple countries, but they have similarities and They are very tech-, tech savvy and they are able to take risks. And also, by nature, we are a cloud solutions, They don't have uh, an infrastructure. Uh, and uh, and we went there. We were quite successful in Nordics. And after that, we after at the end of year one, uh, I um, I opened Germany and France. And uh, and now uh, we have 15 countries uh, with a partner ecosystem that help us to operate uh, in uh, in 21 countries. So I can give way, way more details, but it was a little bit. Uh, the, the journey, the journey, where it was very important to have this risk taker mindset uh, at the beginning, because when you are completely unknown uh, on the market, uh, you need to have some people that can trust you.
1: Okay, that makes sense, Thibaut. Thanks for that. Well, I think we had a question coming up in the in the Q and A. Maybe we can address now because I think there is a little bit of uh, of uh, an interesting story. So we've got a Frenchman in London. So that's two on the call today, guys. Okay. Uh, okay. But. Um, you know, the question is that there, is a, there seems to be a UK attraction for US yeah. startups, or even Israeli startup, in fact, to, to start their business from the UK. Does, does any one of you, or, or you in particular, Thibault, would have any comment about that experience?
5: Reason why is just the language? no yeah, it's it's not only the language so so i'm i'm french and i love my uh my country but uh, honestly i i won't leave the u k and and the brexit was not uh, was not something uh, uh also uh, uh, top of my mind when when it arrives and i think it's a question of uh, it's a different uh it's a different aspect but right now what you are seeing is in the UK, it's, it's easy, probably more easy to, to do business, uh, sometimes, uh, also the, if you look at the different the agility of the market is, uh, extremely, uh, goes extremely fast. And we see the UK as, a, a little US sometimes in terms of decisions. So, uh, in the US, people are very pragmatic. And, uh, and sometimes if you go in South Europe or in certain, uh, countries uh, they they question more they question more uh, what you what you are doing and um, so you need to prove yourself uh, in the uk but they are fast at taking decisions I think it's still something very attractive. I know that some people are, are thinking about uh, amsterdam uh, sometimes and talk about frankfurt or paris it's the the startup ecosystem in france is is great but it's still and I had some discussions with VC, still uh, it's, and it's a shame too much, uh, too much uh, located uh, to France. I think the, the UK has this international exposure that helped to scale business for American companies, at least because I, I spend my life doing that, uh,
3: working for American companies in, uh, in Europe.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. Well, for, for, from our own experience, what we see, and in fact, we, I've had the conversation with a couple of companies who are uh, lining up IPOs, I would say in the next 6 to 12 months, uh, were clients of uh, of operatics, and, and we actually started them in Europe outside of the UK uh, simply because in the UK they would have some very, very strong competition, lots of vendors that are already there. And you go to France, you go to Germany, you go to Italy. I, I think there is also a lot of cliche about this country. You know, you can't sell in France if you don't go for lunch with people, you can't sell in Germany if you're a German. I don't believe that I do go. You think and spend not true. <laughs> well, we do have a lot. <laughs> don't get me wrong. You have a glass of wine. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 typical. It's just for health. Uh, you know, you've got to do that. But you know, th- there is this cliche, and I think actually going into markets where people are as much educated as probably in the UK about the issue, but have less option. Uh, it, is, it should be a better bet in terms of selling, in terms of in terms of growing. But yeah, the UK seems to be the place where everybody comes, and uh, the competition is relatively fierce.
5: Yeah I, think, well, yeah, I think on this, honestly, also what what I felt because I, I literally opened the fifteen different countries, so so I saw different uh, level of uh, maturity. If you look at France, um, it's 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 a fantastic country to be with very large companies, but the time. Uh, that uh, it's going in a, in a mature market, you need to have big names. And in the UK, see, I, I'm coming back to this risk taker. I had this feeling, of, uh, we had not this feeling, but we were able to find risk takers company, even large one at the beginning. In in other countries, sometimes it takes more time. Uh, you need to have a lot of local references before, uh, before being uh, in your right place in the market.
2: I agree. Yeah. And there's also the element of establishing an entity. Yeah. Outside of your core market, you know, which can be really expensive given the amount of investment that it takes, particularly in France and, you know, some of these other countries where, you know, hiring is no small feat, especially for those. First yeah. few to go. I give you a lot of credit for getting people on board because it, it does require a lot of commitment and investment um, forward. And you have to have the legal resources and outside of the the U.K., And Ireland market, but I I think the other thing is just having the resources for early stage companies to get technical support, and also you know the the amount of emphasis in you know countries like France, and as you move your way down Europe, there's an increasing emphasis on hardware solutions versus software and SaaS, and that's another element that a lot of innovation is coming from from cloud based and cloud first security or companies in general. I'm from security, so it just kind of rolls right off the top. <laughs> um, but but security is also obviously a, a big component of that with EU law and GDPR.
3: Yeah, yeah.
4: You know, in, in our particular case, we since we had a privacy centricity when we when we launched uh, today, I would say we're probably more around uh, kind of data management. But um, because of that, we did actually go into Europe quite early. We we did also launch in UK, and it's our largest European office and headquarters for us for international. But yeah, it's a, you could you could hire more easily, you could fire more easily, uh, it's easier to create an entity. I think it's a nice kind of in-between, uh, it's not as risk-averse as the continent. Um, generally speaking, you don't need to have uh, 20 referenceable customers to, to win your first. People are willing to take a little bit more risk, not as much as the US, but certainly a little bit. Yeah, and I think it's a just a very convenient place to walk. But having said that, there's clearly business everywhere. Nordics are terrific. We have people in France, we have people in Germany, Switzerland um europe's a big place
1: and what about the shortage of talents speaking about the people and, and recruiting people so we speak about the risk taker and stuff like that so yeah, i probably remember starting operatics nine years ago so it has been a and we're still not a unicorn believe it or not dimitri this is uh, this is, uh, not, this call, is tiger, the, call tiger
3: <laughs>
4: yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. This, this is absolutely not fair but um I remember going to to conferences. Could it be? We it be a big data or security conferences, as as Titi mentioned. You know, RSA in uh, in the Moscone Center. Nine years, probably double in size. So there is more vendors. All those vendors, of course, not not only it's not a European problem. I think it's also in the U.S. How do you find the right resources when there is so much demand for killer tech people, killer marketing people, killer sales people? It's got to be very, very, very difficult to find the right people.
2: Yeah, a lot of early stage companies rely on their VCs for that. In addition to specific, you know, talent agencies, we have a whole talent team that's dedicated specifically for that purpose. But it, but you're right, it is yeah. a
3: challenge. Yeah, I, I exactly.
4: What we've done, we've kind of targeted as we've gotten a bit more mature and had the wherewithal. And obviously, this is where having a unicorn kind of um, um, uh, label is helpful. But frankly, going to your older, more stodgy competitors, I think is a great place to recruit, right? I think they have less positive uh, kind of futures or outcomes or possibilities. And I think they're a great, they're they're trained, they know your space, you can make them productive in in months, not nine months. Um, And so I think for us across the board, they've already established beachheads in a lot of these places. And I think we proactively go and target kind of older slower uh, competitors that were in that kind of the data
3: security, data privacy, data management space.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes perfect sense. So Thomas, moving on to you and, and from a marketing perspective, uh, a little bit more now, what is it like for a marketer to be part of a fast growing company? How do you manage the multiple strategy, the branding? Uh, I guess you've got a part to play, because. You know, c- coming back to some of the things that we discussed earlier on about how do you put a valuation on the company? I think if you make a lot of noise and people see you everywhere and you've got good PR and you're active, that may help. So, what's the journey for, from a marketer perspective?
0: I think I will follow up directly from what Thibault was saying, which is uh, and how he started in, in Europe. I think the priorities that you're going to have first is. Establish indeed some awareness. What are you standing for? And validated. I totally agree with Thibaut's point about having customers. The voice of the customer is very powerful to validate you. That's where you go, how you go from risk takers to uh, more conservative customers and really get your name out frequently, uh, but always associated to value. And then the other priority is, of course, what I would call demand generation. But how do you contribute also to 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 revenue? Uh, and how do you start? really focusing on that value to get the right conversations going, get your sales engine, get your also ecosystem of partners. That's how I think you can directly contribute to growth. And so those would be the two priorities. But I think it's also about how you connect those and how you connect marketing to the rest of, uh, of, the, of the company. I think the focus is critical. There are always many, many opportunities. Uh, the business is nimble and small, so it could do a lot of things, but it's really on what, are you going to choose in alignment with your sales team or your partner team? Uh, what are you going to focus on customers? For us being a cloud company, as Didi was mentioning, was it's our major differentiator. And kind of also Snowflake, we're doing data protection, which historically has been mostly market of hardware and software, but from the cloud in a SaaS model. So how do we stay always focused in everything we do on that aspect? I think the other element is the clarity. You can't afford uh, to, uh, to to be a bit vague. So you need to clearly state the value and be consistent about how you talk uh, about the value. Your message is your vehicle to do so. And you always need to highlight your, your difference. Being consistent on that aspect, I think, is critical. That's what helps snowball the demand gen and, and awareness uh, aspect. And then the third element is always have an eye on on growth. We spoke a lot about uh, being becoming a unicorn, being a milestone, fine. But what's the journey beyond it? I think our goal, all of us, is to build solid businesses, keep on delivering value, and expanding how we can create this, this value. So this notion of scale in in mind, in a way, on the marketing side, who are you going to hire? Are they going to be your foundation for the for the next year? How are you uh, also scaling the way you engage with your customers, your partner? But also how you learn. I mean, what's fascinating, especially about SaaS businesses, is how everything is connected, and we have a wealth of data. So, how do you very early on uh, on the marketing, but not only the marketing, marketing and sales, etc. How do you keep on uh, on learning and finding the uh, the the needle movers? Uh, there's never enough time and resources. So, how do you really learn to identify identify the good opportunities and just uh, just move forward and keep on growing?
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So it's almost like a, it feels like a journey of reinventing yourself pretty much all the time, looking, listening to customers,
0: listening to what's happening in the market, and kind of adapting your strategy to what's going on. Just Staying that. true to your principles, but I do think indeed it's a, it's a good thing to be opportunistic, and, and you, you should be in a position where you can seize those opportunities. Sure. All right.
1: So question for all of you guys. Obviously, we we you look at it from the well, I guess. Uh, from the top of the mountain of 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 being part or having been part of uh, of the unicorn journey, but let's talk about the challenges now. You know, so I'd I'd like to go around the, the table here, and, and maybe we can start with you, tibo because you you recruited a fair amount of people, you went into the different region and stuff like that, and you actually, um, we we had a podcast where we discuss about some of the challenges that you 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 came across. But uh, yeah, do you wanna get us started on the challenges to the journey of becoming a unicorn?
5: Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it's really linked to just the conversation we just had. So yeah. one, of, one of the biggest challenges, is hiring, uh, and hiring the right people and hiring fast. So, um, and, and it's very, very different by country. So as I said, um, so the risk taker mindset is not, uh, you don't have this mindset everywhere. So in Germany, you need, um, you need to prove yourself before hiring a players on the market. Uh, you can find probably more. Uh, more of this kind of candidate in uh, in Nordics, in UK, uh, or, or Netherlands, Amsterdam, for example. But the speed of scale uh, that we had, um, at one point, I think we were hiring like 15 uh, person a week. Uh, so um, we became a machine to hire. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it worked quite well. What we did is so it's very difficult. So I, I don't necessarily uh, buy into uh, hiring without headhunter. Uh, at the beginning, and after that, when you have the, the decent size, you can, you can internalize this. At the beginning, it's almost impossible. And we took like three headhunters, uh, that we split in different regions and each region they had, um, they were uh, unique on this market. So they, they had exclusivity. So, uh, I always use what is rare and is expensive. So if you, if you are, it's like when you, when you sell your house, uh, if you are in 100 uh, real estate agency, nobody will want to see your house, uh, even if it's a very nice one. So we choose to have only one headhunter per region, and it worked uh, quite, uh, quite well. Um, link, link to hiring, uh, one, one mistake uh, I, I did, um, uh, and, uh, I, we, we started, uh, so different countries. And, uh, for one country, we didn't start with a leader and somebody that could be a leader uh, locally in this country. So we, we started to hire individuals and uh, and we realized it was a mistake and uh, it took us like six, nine months to fix. So if you uh, if you need to hire and grow uh, in different countries, you need to have somebody that can be uh, the future leader. So even if it's not somebody that is a manager straight away, uh, why? Because the team will need that. And some countries in Europe have so many specificities that having a leader is, is very important. And a little bit to come back to what Dimitri was saying, don't necessarily agree on one point. So I think uh, you are perfectly right, Dimitri, on uh, if you look at engineering or pre-sales uh, or, um, or sometimes marketing uh, and product marketing people, it's easier if it's coming from the market. Where we were struggling is to hire very strong sales uh, sales uh, people. And they are not what Mike also we did some mistakes and um, it's not necessarily a good idea of going after the legacy uh, companies. So if you are disruptive, so uh, Snowflake at the beginning was really, was not a data cloud, but really a cloud data house, so replacing the legacy solutions. And on the legacy solutions, sometimes it's like big uh, dinosaurs of the market, and it's not necessary where you will find champion builders or people that can where, where people can buy from them because when, uh, if, if not, if they were like this. So I'm not saying everybody's like that. Of course, you have very good players. It's ideal situation of finding the good candidates in competition. But, um, we realize that the best sales people, I'm talking about the sales, not the rest. The best sales people are not necessarily sitting with pure, uh, competition of companies that you are replacing when you are a, a, a market, uh, uh, market leader on this. Because after that, learning the market uh, on the sales side uh, is not so complex, and and as soon as you have people coachable, they can learn and they can they can scale. But what Dimitri was saying on all all the other functions, I agree that ob- obviously the competition market is absolutely uh, absolutely key. So so I did some mistakes on this. I hire thinking okay, I will have some people they will ramp up quickly. But uh, I realize that uh, as far as they reach, uh, reach limit. and some people not coming sure. to the market, they are absolutely, uh, absolutely brilliant. So, yeah. Right. So, the biggest challenge is hiring, definitely. Sure. sure.
1: From your perspective, Dimitri, because I guess with your role and, and being co-founder, you probably have much more aspects such as, you know, product development and, all that sort of great stuff, so i'm I'm suspecting that that's got to be also something that needs to evolve over time. you need to have more resources you know yeah. have you faced some challenges around that?
4: we faced some challenges you know I think you know one thing I want to kind of comment on um, is also I think it's important for people who are kind of looking at the whole kind of market space, also understanding that there's kind of a downside. I think it it does create certain inefficiencies in the market, right where You know, historically, I think if you looked at the kind of like the first five years of the 2010s, everything was really more oriented because there was less money floating around. Was more about sales efficiency, right? So you wanted to know exactly how much one dollar of marketing would drive in terms of uh, dollars of revenue. How quickly can you know if you had a salesperson? How quickly can they on ramp? And I think while that's still important, I think the over rotation on funding rounds and sizes. Has created more urgency around a different type of priority, where you want to increase your TAM, you want more cross sell and and um, upsell um, to increase your net retention and so forth. And I do think that comes back to the engineering side, right? Not just the the talent, but you know there's more incentive to build bigger, uh, to go wider uh, for the cross sell for the upsell. And I think, because of that, I think it creates more demand, right? And I think in a lot of there's this kind of race for talent, and so you know we're in Israel, but I think you know when we started, maybe there was like two, three unicorns. I think there's forty seven uh, where we have our engineering, and so now you start going and scouring the native like you know where, where all the all the Jews made all the off from, like in Ukraine and poland and and every, everywhere else, but you're competing against everybody else. And so I do think that engineering has become harder. And I think the whole trend towards Unicorn is partly to blame because, again, you're more rewarded for building bigger, for having more products, more modules, more upsell, more cross-sell. And that creates
3: certain inefficiencies, but also creates a lot more competition. Yeah,
1: that makes sense, Dimitri. Thanks for that. Didi, any specific challenges
3: that you see happening over and over again? I think you're on mute, (laughs) Didi? Thank you. Yeah, the
2: road to IPO is littered with great intentions and companies that didn't, you know, pay attention to what the challenges could be. I have a few. So building the company, not just the product. So investing in operations is a big one because you're going to need good data later and workflows and processes um, at the exit. And I would also say when you're looking at new markets, your timing to market has to be very calculated. So it's not just entering a market, you know, assessing the size of it, but also understanding your product market fit for each market and making sure that you have the corresponding collateral. So Thibaut alluded to that, you know, which is just because you're popular in the US doesn't make you popular globally. You have to have a few global customers that will help seed that demand, you know, in other markets, but how you go after those markets, you really have to do the exercise of Understanding what the product market fit is in each of those specific, like federal, for example, you have to have specific elements in your, in your product and your strategy to make sure that you have the way to address the market if, if it does exist. Another piece is pricing complexity and making sure that while you're pricing your product for each of those markets, you also have enough ASP to support a, a global supply chain. And then the last recommendation I would, I would make is balancing between engineering and customer acquisition because in the very early stage, there's a strong emphasis on engineering, but, you know, at some point you have to pivot and really put, you know, the weight of the organization behind customer acquisition, and that's, I think, where Dimitri was going as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, that makes sense, and I think the the operational aspect is probably probably important, I know it's the first thing that you mentioned, because you're right, I mean, if you are developing, growing, gaining customers, and things like that, and I guess you started as someone who was developing software and probably really good at it with some great ideas. Thinking about stuff like customer service, customer support, putting all those things in place before you get stretched and under you know pressure from customers it's got to be it's got to be something you need to think of, right? So it's about it's about planning it before it, it technically happens.
2: Well, what will happen if you don't is that you end up as a larger organization having to put manpower to fill in a lot of the gaps. So you, you can't automate a lot of this stuff fast enough. So you have to put in operations from the beginning and really invest in that area. Because if, if not, then you just end up with a longer term, more painful exercise.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Didi. That makes perfect sense. Thomas, over to you The the from a marketing perspective. Any specific challenges, friction point that you came across? Oh, you're on mute as well, Thomas.
0: Okay. Yeah, thanks. The, the, the biggest challenge on the marketing side was also to... Uh, proposed a solution that was very far from the habits of the markets. I mean, we're addressing a market that has for years bought hardware, software, bought in a certain way. And we knew there was a, a market fit. We had pricing that was easy to consume, uh, easy to understand. Uh, but it was really a change of, uh, of behavior. And what we did, what we had to do is knowing that we were on the right side of history, coming from the cloud, offering a SaaS product, but we had to really push that difference forward and really prove the value easily, showing the difference of experience, showing that in their context, how those potential customers can really create a, create a lot of value. But with the partner ecosystem, with the customers themselves, it, it took uh, um, efforts to really fine tune that approach, which is, hey, we know we're asking you to make an effort, but here's the value you can get and yeah. really uh, pave our engagement with that, uh, with that value. And when you do this, right, and we have weapons we can use, others could not, like trials and POCs, you can do uh, very easily, I'm talking marketing and and sales. But that's when you you start getting those first customers, then you can actually go through that cycle. Uh, But also, I mean, Didi was talking about the, the importance of operations. This, everything that I said can sound very costly. So this is why you need to also have a very strong operational background so that you really understand more about your audience and about how your organization behaves. That's where you can find what really uh, moves the needle.
2: Yeah, to eliminate as much friction as possible, right, for the customer, because there's so much competition right now, especially in a SaaS world where there's a product-led growth kind of mindset, you know, with giving access to your product first and then going through sales and marketing. And that's actually, we did a report recently where we were analyzing the market for startups. And we asked 100 VCs to, vote basically on who did they think were the you know exciting startups and and number one last year was snowflake which is no surprise um yes. but this year um you know at the top was HashiCorp and we've got databricks and zapier and a lot of these other you know up and comers I, I think B- big id might actually be on there as well and so it's it's you know taking a look at, at organizations from that vantage point of how are you going to market and so not only are you able to address it but then how, more di- how much more difficult are you to work with than your competition? Mm. And if the answer is very, then you're going to end up feeling that in your, in your revenue, and your top line.
5: That makes sense.
1: Uh, and is there a ratio uh, top line to investments in, in those sort of aspect that, that company use? Is there a rule of thumb or is it, is it like a specific for, for each organization, would you say, in terms of what you would advise as a VC?
2: So if there's a ratio there,
1: Yes, like for example, would you say look, you've got to reinvest fifty percent of your revenue for, for, for growth, uh, you know, reinvesting the money or I guess there is reinvesting and there is also using investments that are be, being being made, but you know, is there is there a specific investment that is required or ratio that you would look at to, to uh to advise any CEO or co-founder to, to reinvest in their growth?
2: there There is a ratio, I'm sure I don't have any numbers for you. I think it's somewhat dependent on what space you're in and also what you're, what stage you're at, because you know when you're at an earlier stage, you're going to spend the majority of your of your money on engineering, and then little by little you're going to reinvest you know into growing the team and then you know growing into the market space. so um, I don't have a specific ratio, Dimitri, if you have any ideas on that. Yeah, so look, I think,
4: I think as, as you pointed out, I think you kind of change the topic and kind of focus on, um, uh, or not change the topic, but as you kind of grow out uh, by kind of C&D, you're, you're much more interested in demand generation and building pipeline and converting pipeline and, you know, shortening the POCs and increasing win rates and all those type of things. Like I said, I think the one caveat, though, is I do think that as more money, kind of as these companies are able to attract more money, Engineering, historically, I think in my prior two companies did start taking kind of a, um, you know, it was more, I don't want to say maintenance, you still innovated, but it wasn't as, as top uh, priority as some of these kind of um, uh, funnel-led issues. I do think now, as people are trying to increase their um, uh, increase their kind of uh, total adjustable market, that you're seeing constant innovation, right? There's more pressure. And remember, you're competing against other startups that are also unicorns. Everyone's, you know, you turn left there's a unicorn, you turn right, there's a unicorn. And so in every cohort, I think uh, in a category, you get multiple unicorns and everyone is out there building. And so I do think there is more pressure now to build and innovate on a continuous fashion and make sure that nobody can come from below you. Nobody can come from above you. Nobody can come from the side of you.
3: Uh, and so forth. So I do think that that is something that I haven't seen in my prior companies, but I'm seeing now a little bit. Okay. Yeah, thanks for that, Dimitri. So another question for
1: you, Didi. If I was to invest my money, you know, is there, from a VC perspective, what are the most promising industries uh, that, that, that you guys are looking into uh, as becoming the next round of, of unicorns?
2: Um, yeah, I mean, if you look at, you know, the, the report that we just published, there were a handful of elements in there that were trending to show what, what is a strong investment right now. Those have a lot to do with collaboration and productivity solutions. It has a lot to do with data and data management, data yeah. governance, and then security. So those are the the three sort of primary vectors that are that are fueling a lot of investment, um, but I think traditionally, when you look at infrastructure, you look at cloud-native applications, you look at data and analytics, and um, artificial intelligence. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of great solutions out there. Um, the The question really is about more about the team and the founders, you know, and making sure that you've got great people um, that have the experience, ideally, and have done it before successfully.
3: Good.
1: Well Thanks for that, Didi. Mm-hmm. Last question for you guys, uh, and, and maybe we can fire straight uh, very quickly, but if you had one tip to share, the number one tip
3: uh, for startup leaders that are becoming or aiming to become the next unicorn, wh- what would be that tip, Guy? Anyone can go. What would be a tip that you would suggest? So I look. I would say, and this is true, I think, for many companies. And I think it's the it's the first kind of
4: value from Amazon, and it's the first value for us. Ours is just a single word around care. I think the
3: importance of customers.
4: Right at the end of the day, you're building software not for yourself, Um, although you may be a proxy for for the buyer. But ultimately, you're building it for somebody, Uh, whether it's a consumer, whether it's a small business, whether it's a large enterprise. And I think throughout your kind of journey, whether it's in the initial stages where you're trying to find product market fit, and you're kind of developing something, whether it's later when you're trying to kind of appeal and acquire these customers, or even further later, when you're really trying to um, not only keep these customers, but grow these customers. I think the importance of customers is paramount, right? Treat, treat them like kings and
3: queens. And, and I think, you know, a happy customer means a happy, happy, happy uh, entrepreneurial life.
5: Tomatibo. Yeah, no, I can, I can. Uh, uh, so to emphasize, so I agree with what Dimitri just said. Uh, on top of that, um, so probably not to have uh, too much in mind. Uh, okay, I want to become a unicorn. So if you focus only on that at the beginning, probably uh, you will uh, you will uh, fail if it's your only objective. Uh, I will say what makes you uh, so successful, probably in the market, whatever the organization and um, and is uh, accountability. Uh, So making sure that every people, every single service organization, uh, they are all accountable for success. And when everybody's working in the same direction, uh, it's very important. So something I I was always asking to the team was uh, when you finish your shower, or in the morning or at night, uh, you need to look at yourself in the mirror and ask, uh, do I contribute to the success of this company or this region or this country? And and the, and be honest with yourself uh, because nobody is perfect um, and uh, sometimes uh, you have some high and low. Uh, but uh, if you know that you are uh, you are contributing, uh, it's extremely uh, extremely important and linked link yeah. to accountability. When you when you start a business uh, and you build uh, from zero, uh, experience uh, is um, it's very important to lead by example. So. Leaders uh, are most of the time respected if they fight on the field um, with their team, uh, especially at the beginning. So you you will be respected by your teams uh, if you're able to help them, and not necessarily uh, judging them uh, at the beginning or focusing on KPI. I saw so many mistakes because I'm doing a lot of uh, um, advising role and, and, and with with also discussions with certain companies, and sometimes we say yeah okay, we want to literally just uh, use. KPI straight away and, and focus only on that. But uh, you need to prove yourself uh, and you need to gain the trust uh, uh, before uh, before doing that. They are absolutely key, but you need to use them at the, at the right time. So being there, leading by example, being on the field, you need to be ready for that. Uh, for people who are thinking about a startup experience, you need to be ready uh, personally because it's <laughs> It's a very, 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 very time consuming. Uh, It's the best experience, but it's also extremely, uh, extremely difficult to do. So, but uh, if you have this uh, mindset of accountability and and leadership, uh, leadership, by example, it's,
3: uh, it's more helpful. Okay.
0: I think on my end, I would say... uh be and remain opportunistic. I know this word may have some negative connotations in, in a language or others, but I do think it's important. Stay true to your principles, your values, and as Dimitri said to your customers, but you'll be you should be in a position to seize market or technology opportunities uh, in a in a nimble way. And that's gonna have that can have great impact. I mean in the example of Druva 2012, basically our founders rewrote the company uh, really embracing the cloud and that defined what the company is today and it becoming a unicorn and, and whatnot. So, and for the very long time, we were the only company like this. People were saying, well, that's hard, doesn't sound like it may work. But guess what? After an event like uh, like COVID and a pandemic, now every business is going to the cloud looking to reduce costs. So, um, I think this, this uh, if you're opportunistic, you're hope you have this mindset and you're ready to, if it, you see value, you're ready to seize those uh you will uh, keep on creating for value,
1: yeah, that makes sense yeah remaining optimistic is uh, is an important one, even if you're not running a company, that is uh, a unicorn to be sometimes uh, when you are running a like self <laughs> a people business you've got to uh, you've got to keep going that's good. Did you have anything to add
2: yeah no, i sure. would in they addition work? to hiring uh, relentlessly optimistic people, I would also ask yourselves as a founder who do you want to be when you grow up? And then determine what's the right business model and the right routes to market. Because nailing those two things are absolutely critical. And sometimes you have to try more than one and see where the market is. Because it's one thing to know who your customer is and to have a solution for them. It's another to figure out how to get to them. And that's where, you know, I think a lot of mistakes are made is trying to always go direct or to try to go to large enterprise instead mm-hmm. of really understanding that you're a better mid-market play until you can build out the feature set or you know picking a, the wrong type of channel or, or not including distribution. I mean, those are all really important elements that you have to establish early on. And that's part of that product market fit is determining the right the route, route to market.
1: Sure, okay. Yeah, starting with the end in mind. I'm reading a book about that actually at the moment, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. So I'm really learning about that a little bit more. Uh, So guys, we're going to turn to the question in the chat. So let me open up the chat to see what we've got in there. I'm going to start from the bottom. Uh, Have you observed that becoming a unicorn is appropriating the true goal of a startup? That is to create new value that meaningfully change our customer's life. Apologies for a physical, for a physical, for a philosophical question. I think Dimitri, you kind of touched that at the very beginning when I was asking you what's next when you get to a unicorn.
4: Look, I, I
3: think so. Look, I, I don't know about
4: uh, what was it, change, change. I don't think it's about changing a customer life. I think it's about providing value to a customer. If you change their life in the process, that's terrific. But I don't think anybody. You know, we're not. Uh, we're not. Uh, forget what. Um, the pill that they take in that book uh, that NBC just did a series on. Um, but yeah, I think at the end of the day, you're trying to create value for a customer, right? And that could be cost reduction. It could basically maybe provide some type of compliance. It could help them manage uh, things that are unmanageable, like your data. Um, and I think that's
3: the priority, right? Creating value. And I think you'll know it when you have it because they're willing to pay you money. Yeah. Good. Yeah, that makes sense. Another question,
1: uh, oh, maybe one for you, Thibault, because you, we, we we're using your terminology here. How do you identify risk taking sales reps and risk taking customers?
5: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good uh, <laughs> it's a good question. Um risk risk taker sales rep, um, so to the, to the first question um is uh, depending on what people want to do. So for example, uh, if you, it's a little bit like when you do risk taking when you buy uh, private equities or, or shares uh, in in the market. So depending on your appetite uh, to the risk, you have those people um, that they know that if they arrive early, they will they will win bigger. They have a bigger risk of failing, but they will, they can win bigger. And and you have it's it's just uh, going through interviews. You can ask some specific uh, questions, and some people they want. And, and you need to respect that. They want the, to continue their life. They, they are not putting their their life at risk. Um, I can I can speak about my own experience. It was very when you start from zero scratch, nothing, and you come from very large companies before. Uh, your your way of living is changing drastically. So uh, you need to be prepared for that. And some people are prepared for that on, in the market because they know that if they do the right risk in their career, they will they will do that for customers. Uh, it, it's more, you, you will find, and, and it was easier in the UK, as I said, it's also the case in Nordics, where you have some people that want to show that they were the first one to use the technology, yeah. that they are, they are innovative. Uh, so at the beginning, we were focusing only on technology uh, technology companies. And uh, one company will go IPO very quickly, one of the super large uh, uh, IPO in the UK very soon, and it was one of our largest customers at the beginning. So they are delivering food. So if you know this company, uh, and uh, and and for them, they are extremely um, extremely. They are focused on innovation. They are super pragmatic, and they don't. Um, they are not uh, necessarily attached to legacy because they were born in the cloud. So we were we focused on people that were understanding us and they they, decide they they were very pragmatic the testing they were they were tough but uh, we were we were doing the right things and after this they took uh, they took the risk so it's not it's not a secret recipe but uh, it's more when you have your technology you need to see where the fit will go uh, first uh, for people you will hire and, and customers
3: okay thank you Thibaut. Um, I
1: think we're probably getting to, 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 uh, to the, D hour mark now. So I'm sure everybody's got to, uh, some, some other, uh, some other business to attend, which is very unfortunate. Um, but I wanted to thank you guys. So all the panelists, first of all, for coming on today and sharing your thoughts and insights. It's, yeah. it was really good. So thank you very much for sharing uh, everything that you shared with you today. And for the rest of the people and the, uh, the, the attendees, thank you also for joining in. And listening to us, guys, we'll make sure that we share the the recording uh, appropriately through the the, the the usual medium, the social medium. But yeah, thank you again, everyone, for coming today and participating to the to the
3: to the discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. This thank was you. fun. We're Thanks so us. much. Thank,
2: thank you. Anyway. Operatics has redefined the meaning of revenue generation for technology companies worldwide. While the traditional concepts of building and managing inside sales teams in-house has existed for many years, companies are struggling with a lack of focus, agility, and scale required in today's fast and complex world of enterprise technology sales. See how Operatics can help your company accelerate pipeline at operatics.net.
0: You've been listening to B2B Revenue Acceleration. To ensure that you never miss an episode... Subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.